I want to give just a little talk to begin with. I hope I'm preaching to the choir here, um, but maybe some new ideas that might be helpful. We call our little presentation Living Naturally. And Linda and I have found living as we have for over 35 years now out in the country with our own place and our own food and our own water and being able to be together, our family all the time. I was fortunate we had a family business, as I'll describe later, where I didn't have to leave home hardly at all. And the few times we did, <coughs> I could take our daughter with us. Um, it was wonderful. It was God's original plan really. Um, and you know, for nearly all of human history, almost everybody lived in the country. We live in a very unusual time in world history when most people don't. Now, it wasn't always by choice, of course. Uh, there were a lot of peasants and serfs they lived in the country, they didn't really want to be there and they were working for somebody else, but there were other people that had nice country homes. Think of uh, Mount Vernon and Washington. Um, he could have lived wherever he wanted. He loved country life. In fact, when I went there, it's where I got some of the ideas for our greenhouse that I'll show you. Um, think of Jefferson and Monticello and what he had. And how about Ellen White herself? Wherever she went, she had a country home. Sunnyside and Elmshaven were both about 70 miles from the nearest large city. Uh, in fact, at Sunnyside, um, there wasn't even a road to it when they first got it. They had to float down the river to, to get to it. It's not that way anymore. Um, at uh, Elmshaven, she bought 70 acres, but she ended up, I think it was 30 or 35. She sold the other to a son and some to the hospital and whatnot. She had hundreds of fruit trees on her land there. She had a spring on her land. In those days, you didn't go out and get um, a piece of country property and not have water. <laughs> so we need to keep some of those things in mind. Um, there's others like Enoch, David, Elijah, uh, even Adam and Eve themselves. But uh, most people really lived a hard scrabble life. And a lot of people today still think, oh, move to the country, it's going to be primitive, it's going to be hard, it's going to be terrible. Well, the fact is, some of it is hard, and that's what's good for us. We need outdoor manual work, but it should be pleasant as much as possible. Um, there's two periods in history when most people lived in cities. Just two. One of them was the Tower of Babel. And it's interesting, if you have your little handout we gave you, uh, the first two pages are statements from the Spirit of Prophecy, but the other one is statements from Scripture. And if you look on the Scripture one, number nine there, it starts out, and they said. I have them here instead of looking them up in the Bible. I want to read that one, a little bit of it. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city. We usually think of it as just the Tower of Babel. It was actually a city. Um, whose top is in the heavens, let us make a name for us, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord did not want people to be concentrated in small areas. And the reason is, is because people just were people, and if you see the neighbors doing something and whatnot, especially with the advent of 
carnal nature and sin and so on. It just, people breed on each other with sin and it just turns into a mess. It's a lot better if people are scattered out and have to work on the land. They tend to be healthier and they tend to be more moral. So the Lord didn't like that and you know what happened. But until that happened, everybody was living in one valley there virtually because it's just down from where the ark landed. After that happened, with the confusion of languages, people were scattered all over the earth. The vast majority of people lived in the country for almost 4,000 years, until our day. You've probably read in news magazines or whatever that it was about two years ago, the world passed the threshold where now over 50% of people worldwide live in cities, many of them in huge metro areas with millions and millions of people. Um, that just happened recently, and it's expanding tremendously now uh, with people flocking to the city, especially in the uh, third world country now. They, they think it's going to be a better life. You can't blame them because many of them, their country life is pretty tough. When you think, if you've done any mission work like we have um, all over the world. So why do so many people love urban life? What's the, what's the burning reason behind it? Originally, God gave us a garden home. We know that. And if you've heard people talk, they usually say there's two great institutions that came out of Eden. And what were the two? Marriage and the Sabbath. There were really three. There were three. The third one was garden home, how you were to live. And we've largely forgotten that. And it's an interesting fact, it's kind of a sad fact, that those three are all under attack in our world, have been for years. I mean, is marriage under attack, would you say? Even the definition of marriage. Unfortunately, even among Adventist people, um, marriage is in decline. There's a lot of immorality. It's hard for people to be loyal and faithful their whole life. The Sabbath worldwide is hardly even known. It's been jettisoned by almost every religion on earth and even among Adventists, faithful Sabbath observance is kind of declining. How about country living? Would you say that the vast majority of Adventist people you know live in the country? Do they know they should? Yeah, well, they kind of misunderstand it in a way, but un there was an article, I think it was a year or two ago, it was a whole review on cities versus country, I don't know if you remember it. In there it mentioned that in North America, 90% of all people live in cities. But it's slightly more than 90% of Adventists live in cities, in spite of 100 years of counsel the Lord has given us. How could that have happened? You said the general population is 90%? And Adventists is about the same, if anything, slightly more. And the reason is, is because Adventists, I, this is my opinion now, Adventists tend to be a little more educated than perhaps the general population. And unfortunately, educated people head to where you can make more money, and that's where the, they, they keep the money in the cities, kind of, uh, is the reason. So. There have been many articles at the same time in the last five or ten years in many of our papers on what's happening to our youth. We are losing many of our young people uh, in the Adventist church. 
walking out the back door, even the front door. But the real reason, or the major reason, again, in my opinion, is never mentioned. And that's that these kids have all been raised in fast-paced urban environments. And the world is such an allure, they're just sucked into it. And they're not much interested um, in anything really spiritual. Some of them have a facade. Um, the answer to that is to get back to our roots. Uh, is, and I think it's very important, um, especially for those of you who have children or who are grandparents and have grandchildren uh, that you want to help and you want to help them with their spiritual life. Um, yes? Now technology brings the city to the I'm going to go into that. You're right. Uh, uh, in 1900, when Ellen White was giving her most ardent counsel to move to the country, and this is kind of puzzling in a way, half, about half, of all Americans still lived on a farm. And the other half didn't all live in cities, but they didn't really farm anymore. Farming was going down. Today, I think it's around 3 to 4 percent live on farms. Uh, it was still half. And she was saying, folks, we got to get out. Why would she be saying all that when hardly anybody lived in a city, at least among our people? The Lord always warns us ahead of time when disaster is coming. His, his counsel was prescient. Who knew that cars, planes, radio, television, the internet, all these things were about to be invented. They were not, most of them were not even heard of when she made uh, a lot of this counsel. Uh, industrialization, factory towns, world wars, debt, foreclosures, the Great Depression, and the allure of city living all began to suck people off the land in America and into cities. After World War II, there was a vast exodus because the Depression was over finally and people started to flock to the cities in America. And if you've seen pictures of it in the old days, I mean all the little suburbs cropping up, you know, all the cookie cutter houses and all that. Our parents went with the flow, virtually all Adventists just went with the flow. That's what was happening. Uh, <clears throat> we were both raised in loving, conservative Adventist homes. Our parents had been um, raised in the Depression, and it was tough for them. They viewed country living with being deprived and drudgery and all that, and they forgot, really, that their ethics, their morals, their spirituality, their character had been forged in the tough but wonderful life they had had in the country. And when they raised us in the city, we didn't have any of that. And so it went with many Adventist young people. They drifted away from the church. We were fortunate um, that the Lord got a hold of us and we came back to our roots, but it had been far better had our people not done that. Um, so why do people really love it? People like convenience. They like jobs. They like money. <laughs> they like malls. Easy food. It's not easy to grow your own food. The Lord didn't intend. In fact, what did he say? You're going to get it by the sweat of your brow. He didn't want to make it easy. People have always tried to get out 
of the discipline that the Lord put there for our own good. Um, but food is easier. You just go, I mean, it is incredible. You walk into any supermarket in America, and there's stuff from 10,000 miles away and everywhere. I mean, there's food year-round. Virtually everything you want doesn't always taste that great, but it's there. Um, and uh, people also, they like the public utilities. And now this is one that I don't want to step on a lot of toes today, but a lot of people move to the country maybe raising some of their food, but often the utilities still come from the city. From, and I think it's wise we need to slowly, carefully get away from that. Um, and, of course, people love the leisure time. But there's a downside to all of this wonder. And some of the downsides that I've seen are stress. Is anybody stressed out in cities, do you think? There's congestion. And with congestion comes lack of privacy. And with the Internet, you don't even have walls anymore when you think about it. And if you're, if you're into it, I hope you're not, at least not very much. Um, so you don't have any privacy. There's pollution. There's crime. And then we go to the ones that are more important. There's absent fathers. And unfortunately today, there's absent mothers uh, too. Uh, and then the worst one that most people don't think about, there's complete and utter dependency on the world around you, which will be used in the future as a lever to get you to compromise your spiritual beliefs. That's one of the things that Linda and I have tried hard to, to work on in our place so you can have all the conveniences that normal people have, but you don't have to pay for them. And that, who wouldn't want that? <laughs> um, it goes something like this. I need the job to make the money, to pay the mortgage, and the car payment, and buy the food, and get all those wonderful consumer goods and all the utilities and the electronics and the toys. I need, and it all goes back to that job, and most jobs <coughs> are in an urban environment. The devil has seen to that, that they're there. You make more money in a city, but you spend more money. That's just the way it is. <coughs> and to break that cycle, you have to get rid of the expenses so you don't need the money, at least not as much. And then what you do have is just as much left over as you had before. But that's a, it's a hard mentality change for a lot of folks. Um, also greater trust. You, greater trust in the Lord, that's true. Uh, you have to change your whole lifestyle. Some people have tried to move to the country in location, but their mental outlook, they run to the store and all that sort of stuff never changed. And it just gets, costs you more because it's farther to drive now and so on. Uh, so you need a change in lifestyle. Unless it seem that these are just my ideas, and I know most of you probably read all this anyway, but these aren't minor importance. I'd like to just refer to a couple of statements. I hope you all will take these statements that we've passed out. Um, hopefully everybody has a copy. There are two pages are statements from um, Spirit of Prophecy. One is from Scripture. Let's look at statement number one on the regular just statements for a moment. And you're welcome to keep these handouts. 
says, in the beginning, he placed our first parents amidst the beautiful sights and sounds he desires us to rejoice in today. The more nearly we come into harmony with God's original plan, the more favorable will be our position to secure health of body and mind and soul. It's God's ideal. It really is. That CL means country living, if you want to refer to those. Uh, look down to statement number eight. It's over the page there. If many of those, and by the way, there's some ellipses in here because I tried to condense these. If you want the full statement with all its context, go to the, uh, the book. And even in the book, Country Living, most of those are excerpted from manuscripts. If you've ever looked up the context of some of these, it's, it's fascinating. I encourage you to do that, but we didn't have room here. If many of those living in the cities could be taken to some farming district surrounded with the green fields, the woods and hills and brooks, the clear skies and the fresh, pure air of the country, it would seem almost like heaven. Now notice this next sentence. Cut off to a great degree from contact with and dependence upon men and separated from the world's corrupting maxims and customs and excitements, they would come nearer to the heart of nature. God's presence would be more real to them. Many would learn the lesson of dependence upon Him. Now, many people said, oh, you're living out there self-sufficient. And I always tell them, no, we're not self-sufficient at all. It's just now we're dependent on God rather than on Costco. That's the difference. Never think that you're going to go out and do it all on your own no more than you can in your spiritual life. The Lord will work with us, but we will then be dependent on Him. And it's so important to learn to be dependent on God. Many people, and I was this way, I think, think of you as themselves as being spiritually dependent on the Lord, but seldom do they think of themselves physically dependent on because they almost never are. If you become dependent on God for your utilities, you, you start thinking about God a little different, the Creator, than you do if you pay a bill and the utilities actually come from the power plant over there. It's important um, who your dependence is. Um, it'll become absolutely important in the future when though that dependency is used as a lever to get you to compromise. Uh, now's the time of preparation. <clears throat> and then finally, number 11. During the night season, I was in council. I was pleading with some families to avail themselves of God's appointed means and get away from the cities to save their children. Some were loitering, making no determined efforts. The same voice that warned Lot to leave Sodom bids us come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean. Those who obey this warning will find a refuge. Let every man, and I believe she means fathers there, let every man be wide awake for himself and try to save his family. We, as fathers, grandfathers, guys, we need to get with this and save our families. Now, I feel uh, strongly that country living is not our salvation. Christ is our salvation. However, do you think if Noah had said, Lord, I like the plans for the boat, but it looks like a lot of work. And I know you are a wonder-working God. You can save me and my family. 
just floating on a log. You can work a miracle. Why do we have to build this boat? A lot of folks view country living that way. The Lord is just going to work a miracle. And we don't need to do this. That's not true. That might be true for the time of trouble, just before Jesus comes, when we will be driven from every human habitation. The Lord will do that when he needs to, but not now. Um, look at number 31, a quote here. I may refer to some of these later. I think this is a very important thing, because I talk to many Adventist people, and this is their feeling. The Lord never intended us to try to prepare for coming events physically. Just spiritually, he'll take care of us. We don't need to worry about it. But notice what Ellen White says in 31. If we place ourselves under objectionable influences, can we expect God to work a miracle to undo the results of our wrong course? No, indeed. Get out of the cities as soon as possible. Purchase a little piece of land where you can have a garden and so on. This is our ark. And part of the reason is by building a country home, and, and Linda and I have gone through this, it's not easy to find a good piece of land. Uh, it's not easy to change that whole lifestyle and build a garden and all that sort of stuff. We found it fun. We enjoyed it because our heart was in it. But it's not really easy. But doing it will build your faith in a way that nothing else can do. You're cooperating with God. And he will allow you to have setbacks and mistakes. We, we have a whole house we did on our place called our mistake house. <laughs> and I'll talk about that when we're talking about building your own home. We did virtually everything wrong. We were happy as could be in this little cabin. But the smoke didn't go where, you know, all this sort of stuff. And we learned. If you don't get discouraged and learn, I'm sure the angels were smiling, you build your faith. So the day will come when we're going to need that faith, not just for our food, but to stand for what is right. And we need to exercise that faith now while we can. Um, it's always good to follow God's counsel. Isn't that true? It's always good. Uh, you know, today we're very fortunate, especially in this country. You can still move to the country. There's lots of land available especially in the mountains. That's why we went to the mountains. People don't like, they love to look at mountains. They don't want to live there. So it, the land's basically unused. Uh, we're going to go through this whole thing in, in finding good land. The reason it's good land in the mountains, and Ellen White, there's a statement in there I'll refer to where she says, don't think you're deprived if you're called to go to the hills and the mountains. Um, it's tougher. It's colder. But the reason is, is the water there is pure. You get it first. I won't tell you how many, well, I shouldn't even say it maybe, but when we, we lived in Southern California for a short time when we were just out of school and teaching. And there was a statistic there of how many other bodies the water had been through upstream before it got to your town, and then they filtered it and took care of it. And all. If you want to live like that, you go right ahead. I'd rather be at the top end. And the top end is the mountains in the hills. That's just the way it is. Um, there's many other reasons uh, for that. But we have a choice and there's still land. It's not that way everywhere. A few years ago we were traveling in Germany with some of our students on a 
a study trip and a mission trip. We were in southern Bavaria. If those of you who are German have been there, Bavaria is beautiful. It's much like Montana. It has gorgeous mountains. It's, a, it's the German Alps. A lot of farmland around. We were traveling along towards uh, Munich, and there was a young lady in her 20s, I think, that was on the train with us, and we were all talking among ourselves. She could tell we were talking English. So she came over and spoke quite good English, and she said, uh, you're from America? I said, yes. Um, and she asked what we were doing and so on, and she had some questions because she was a travel agent, and was, she was designing trips for Germans to go visit America. And she particularly at that time wanted to know about Utah because it was when the uh, Winter Olympics were going to be there. And so I was telling her and then about what I knew, and I said, I have some questions for you. I said, I, I said, because I ask this wherever I go, um, if, if a German family living in Munich, which is a huge city, would like to move out in the country, uh, can you buy land? You know, I see lots of open land out here and have a little, you know, garden and that sort of thing. She said, no. She says, in Germany today, it's against the law to sell any more parcels in the country. There's too many people. We want them all in the cities. And you just, you can't split the land anymore. And I, boy, that hit me hard. I said, um, but I see some houses. There were some, we were floating through the countryside. I see them out here. Uh, who's living there? Oh, she said, if your family has owned land in the country and has a farm or whatever, your grandfather did. I wasn't, you know, I forget what idiom she used, but, and you can live there as long as you want and you can pass it to your family and, and you can stay there. But nobody else can do that. We have been told what will happen. Uh, I don't know if I can find the statement there. Somebody might have to help me. Um, number 30. But ere long, there will be such strife and confusion in the cities that those who wish to leave them will not be able. We must be preparing for these issues. This has happened time and time again in history where the Lord has counseled people to do something, counseled them to do that, and they don't do it. He doesn't work a miracle, and eventually it's not possible. I could tell you many other stories about that, but I'm taking too much time anyway. So we, we need to be careful. Here in America, we haven't reached that point, but it is coming in various ways. Uh, you can't use the water. I remember a, a guy actually hired me some years ago to go to Colorado where he had bought some country property. He wanted me to evaluate it because he knew I lived in the country and what he could use and so on. So I went there uh, with two of his <coughs> aides and I looked at it and there was a beautiful little stream running through it. It was in southern Colorado. But I kind of noticed it looked a little strange. Uh, it looked a little too planned. So we followed the stream back and it was actually a diversion ditch that came out of a real stream farther back. So I went to the uh, downtown to the county courthouse and started checking and somebody told me, well, I think that actually goes to a ranch in Smithsonian. I said, where she live? And while well, she lives in town over here, so I walked over there, knocked on her door. She was a pleasant, uh, intelligent, older lady. Told her what I was interested in. Oh, she says, I know that property well. She says, yes, that ditch is, is our ditch. It goes through that property and goes down to our, but we have all the water rights on it. And they can look at it, but they can't use it. So I told this guy the bad news. 
he actually, he was a, a nice guy. He thanked me for helping him to find out what the problem really was. He ended up selling the property and losing a lot of money on it. You gotta be careful. And little by little, the screws are tightening where you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't and so on. So be careful. If you all, I hope everybody in this room already has wonderful country property and, I'm, and you don't need to hear any of this. But if you are just thinking about it, hopefully we can encourage you, but you gotta do it with finesse and with wisdom. Uh, you don't want to just sell everything and, you know, what, what they used to do is Pike's Peak or Bust or something like that. Uh, we don't want that mentality either. So, Linda and I made that choice many years ago. It's, I want to tell you, other than finding each other and our choice to accept Christ in our life, it's the best decision we ever made. And I tear up even sometimes when I tell you that our daughter, when she graduated from high school and she was taught at home, she said that herself. She said the best decision my parents ever made was when I was six months old, they moved to this land. It's true. You'll never regret it. You're not going to get rich doing it unless you sell your wonderful country home because they become very valuable. But that's not what we're after. It is the right decision. We wanted to develop a, a truly sustainable country home, not just a cabin in the woods, not just a recreational piece. There's a difference between the two. We wanted to avoid two extremes. And we'll talk about this uh, a lot more as we, as we go along. One is... <clears throat> To move out in the country but be so tied to urban life with wires and pipes and the internet and your job and all of that, that you've really just taken the city with you. It's better. That's a step in the right direction. But it's not full country living as I see it. That's one extreme. The other extreme is a bunker mentality. It's, it's kind of like prepper or survivalist. And some people come into our valley and they ask around and they, they'll come. Uh, people just interest me. So are you prepping? And I said, well, no, I'm living. <laughs> There's a difference. Uh, usually a bunker mentality has a little garden and a big concrete underground place with lots of guns and lots of ammo. And I don't think that's God's approach either. Uh, actually, it's a nice home, simply built, costs very little. It's out in the open so all the neighbors know what you're like and what you're doing. It's convenient. It has a big garden. It has a beautiful woods. It's all cleaned up around it. It looks as close to Eden as you can make it in this old sinful world. And that's the difference. That's God's plan in that middle. Um, our whole <coughs> seminar today is how do you get from where we are to get there. And we're trying to give you every idea that we have learned by making tons of mistakes and a few good choices of what works, what you can do. Really, I want you to know we are people of modest means. We were teachers, which meant we made a nice salary, but it was never a big salary. It's, most people spend all you make on a salary like that. It was difficult to save enough money to buy land. 
but we did. Uh, we lived very frugally, but well. We didn't take expensive vacations. We went backpacking and, and so on and so forth. And I'll tell you a lot more about that and some of the other things we do. Uh, the whole purpose is to have a home with all the worthwhile <coughs> conveniences of modern technology just without the bills, without the monthly bills, without the dependency. That's what we wanted to do. So we prepared a slide program, and the way I want you to understand how this works so that you can do what's best for you, <coughs> I'm not going to get through the slide program this hour. We'll, we'll start into it. We'll finish it next hour. And then after that, we're going to go <coughs> spend each, most of an hour on each of these topics. <coughs> but, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I would like to take a poll after we do the slides <coughs> from all of you on which one you want to hear about the most. Because if most of you have already found good land and could care less, you know, we can talk about it a little bit. It's kind of pointless. Uh, Many of you may have land, but it maybe isn't sustainable land. It's a, it's a step in the right direction. And, and that's not wrong. The Lord leads us little by little. We spent five years living in a little apartment in a town to save money so we could get land. And so the Lord finds us in many different places. And then building your own home, using native materials, doing the work yourself so it all works well when you're done and costs al almost nothing to maintain. Independent utilities will be another one, and that's all about how to have hot water without having to work at it. It's automatic, uh, but you don't have to have gas or anything. How to produce your own electricity, uh, how to have a water system, water your garden, all of that without having to have pumps and, and, and everything. Anything else having to do with utilities, including how to cook food without having to use propane or electricity and so on. What there's bad wood stoves out there, and there's really nice ones. And Linda has a nice one now. She'll tell you about that. Alpine gardening. We live in a truly mountain alpine area. Um, it's up in northern Montana. It overlooks Glacier National Park. We have long winters. We have snow on the ground five months out of the year. You never see the ground in the middle of the winter. We love the snow. Most people don't, fortunately, and so they've left the whole valley to us. Uh, <laughs> And, but how do you grow food in a place like that? Um, and, and some of you who, I, I know we're here in Texas, so maybe everybody's from the south here, and it's like, well, who cares? But actually, it can get cold here, I found out. <laughs> and you might have an orchard, but maybe you get late spring frost. We just get frost. Uh, we can get frost all summer long. Um, Occasionally, July goes without a frost, but always in June, and it would freeze our blossoms every time. So we figured out a way how to have fruit trees, even in an environment like that. And then family business options, especially for some of you fathers and so on. To be able to leave a city job and have a family business that your wife and your children can help you with, and that will actually work. And if there's any a place where you shouldn't be able to make any money, it's in our valley. Nobody lives there hardly. Uh, it's very seasonal. You, it's too far to commute to town. So what do you do? Actually, in some ways, we found it easier once you get the mentality of how to have a family business in a more isolated or secluded area. Um, 
So we'll talk about, and we've done several different ones. Maybe one of them will work for you or your children. So those are what we're going <coughs> to concentrate on the rest of the day. But right now, I just want to start a slide program. And we're going to go through it very quickly. This is a brief overview. I know you may have some questions, but they'll get answered the next time around, hopefully. Um, so we'll just set up here. And hopefully if there's people over here that can't see, because I want to kind of talk from here. <clears throat> you could maybe move a little bit if need be. <clears throat> see if these cords will reach. What's that? Maybe it will work without the power. You tell me if where the best place is. Linda's going to help me with this. <coughs> Let's see. Could somebody turn off the lights in the back? And maybe close the door if it's too noisy for you in the back. I don't know. <coughs> we call our lifestyle living naturally rather than living artificially is the idea. Um, first thing we were faced with is how do you find a piece of land? Uh, we were living in Southern California, so we took a trip with some friends of ours for about a month. We had some time off as teachers and they had a vacation. We traveled all over the West. We loved mountains and we thought, well, we'll find a good place. So we actually found five or six secluded but not isolated valleys that were forgotten for some reason. There was something wrong with them. Either they were wrong side of the mountain or too far away or something. And this is one of the valleys that we found on that trip. Um, the valley's 50 miles long and you're just seeing a little piece of it. It goes right and left. Um, it ends at Canada. Uh, it, well, that's where the U.S. Valley ends. It goes up in Canada, but it's a, in Canada it's a horseshoe valley. There's no way out except over a 5,000 foot pass. So there was only one Canadian family living north of the border. So the water is pure. I mean, in the, where the mountains are is Glacier National Park, but it's the back country of Glacier. It's undeveloped. <coughs> but it keeps it from being overrun. Anyway, we decided this was the valley for us. And I would encourage you, if you're looking for land, don't look for a piece of land first. Look for an area. Look for a valley. Uh, a, a, and, and the Lord needs people everywhere. Not everybody needs to live in the Rocky Mountains. But a lot of people do. And some people, it's the Ozarks or the Appalachians or the hill country of Texas. Wherever it is, the Lord's calling you. Just be sure that the reason you're going there is because that's where your talents and your needs can be met. But once you find the valley, then start combing it for land. Okay? What's your elevation? Our elevation is at the top of the hill is 3,800. So it's not real high valley, but the mountains top out at about 10,000. Um, I'm going to have to move faster, but I think what we're going to do is at 8.15, somebody stop us. We're going to have a break. We'll come back and finish these slides. We're not going to get them done. 9.15, we stop. 9.15, sorry. 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Okay. Um, this is a picture that's taken from the top of the hill on the land that we bought. 
and you can see it's undeveloped, but a lot of forest and so on. This is another view from the top of the piece of property. Uh, there's a beautiful river runs down through this valley, and you can buy riverfront property, but it was more expensive. You can't use river water very well. It's hard. To, you can't make power out of it easily because there's very little, a lot of flow, a lot of water, no drop. It's a lot of reasons. It's pretty. So we asked when we were buying it, we wanted a deeded easement to the river. So we bought the back property. It had all the springs and the trees and all that, but we still have a road that goes down there that we have a right to go on. We put in canoes and rafts. It's a beautiful place to go. But that's another thing to remember. Don't buy recreational or tourist-type property. It costs you a lot more. This is the road that comes up the valley. It's a gravel road. We're 40 miles from the nearest town. Uh, the road goes down through that little cut in the mountains you see down there. These mountains on this side are more like the Appalachians, and they're about the same height. Forested clear to the top, but it's a long ways to town. Part of it's paved in a couple places. Uh, halfway up the valley is, a, is an old store. It's called Pole Bridge, and that's our address. But Pole Bridge isn't a town. It's just this store, and there's a, a little cafe, <coughs> quote, saloon next door. There's probably 10 people live there year-round. It's kind of cute. It was built over 100 years ago, and it serves tourists now. It's actually closed a lot of the time when there aren't tourists. This is the one day of year there's hardly anybody there. I mean, there'll be 10 or 15 cars maybe on a weekend. This is 4th of July, and the guy riding the mules there was a neighbor of ours for years and is a good friend. <coughs> it's a very folksy parade, so a lot of people come from uh, places. This is the entrance to our property. Even signs can cost you a fortune. We put this up ourselves with come-alongs and all that. We never had cranes or anything to work with. And these are our two dogs, uh, Chloe on the left, because they feature a lot in this little slide program, and Misty on the right. Misty is our daughter's and, and uh, Ted and Rochelle's dog. They're sisters from the same litter. They love the snow. So uh, it's important to get a dog that likes where you live. Um, we call the place Tamarack Springs, and the reason is is because the dominant tree are tamaracks. <coughs> I knew nothing about them when I came, <coughs> but they're also called Western Larch. They're the best tree there, uh, and we have springs on the place, and, and I, I can't tell you enough. If you can buy a piece of property, <coughs> we have 37 acres, a little over 37, that have springs on it or especially if they come out on a hillside a little bit where you have gravity water. It's wonderful. And we have some options if you don't. But this, this fountain we build ourselves. <coughs> Otherwise, it costs you fortune just to have a fountain. I mean, we build everything ourselves. It's just the local stone is free and a little concrete. It's free-flowing. Um, it, it does not recirculate. You can drink right from it, and it flows over into a little marsh uh, when you're done. But it runs like that all winter even. We believe that country homes, even if they're in the wilderness, should be as beautiful as you can. Surround yourself with flowers and green grass. I mean, actually, lawns in our valley are a novelty. There's hardly any. Uh, the soil's not conducive in the winter and so on, but you can have them. Our home is partway up the hill, and we found property with hills, as Ellen White said, is wonderful because it gives you some elevation. Even if you don't have water in the hill, you can pump it up there with one of these high lifters I'll talk about, and put a reservoir up there. And so it's like you have gravity feet. So if it's nice to have some elevation. The springs actually come out about that much distance again above the house. So the house has gravity too. We, we have all next time to do it. Um, 
going up the hill, this is the road near the house, and you can see some of the large trees, the tamaracks. Uh, roads are another issue. And people can go broke building roads. We have nearly a mile of roads on our own land just to access the forest and various things. The way to have a good road really cheap is to go in first, figure out where the road's going to go, which you have to do a little elevation and so on, cut all the trees that will be in the road. Usually people just have a bulldozer come and push the trees over and push them out of the way. You end up with a horrible mess that you have to clean up. It takes him a lot longer. Cut all the trees, the nice ones, uh, that are good for timber or for cutting for lumber, you keep those. The rest of it's firewood. The needles all end up uh, in your compost pile and finally the brush might get burnt. But it's all gone. Then the guy with the machine can come in and in a few hours he can create a beautiful road. There's nothing in his way. He can get the stumps out for you. That's how we built the roads and then you finish them with some nice gravel and you have a, a good all-weather road. This is the house up close. <coughs> we built it so you would have big windows on the front. It's kind of squished. It actually looks a little different in real life. But um, huge windows, two-story windows, so that you could see out into nature. And a lot of light, natural light, floods into your home. Um, the little door on the front in the rock wall is an access with a chute that we built. It's 10 feet long, slopes down. You just open it, take a wheelbarrow load of wood. You throw the wood in there. It slides right down. And Linda stacks it down <laughs> in the furnace yeah. room. Um, but it keeps all the wood mess out of your house. In fact, we don't have a wood stove other than her cook stove upstairs at all. You'd never know it isn't heated with electricity or whatever. And it, that's an important feature, and it's nice to think of those things when you're building it. Here you can see some of the landscaping that we also did, um, which was very inexpensive. <coughs> What's fun, when you live in the woods, uh, sometimes you need to get a permit, but we uh, were able to just go out in the woods and pick up the rock that you see there and the bark was also picked up in the woods from some old logging site. Somehow the trees they logged in that area, <coughs> when they pulled them out, it just left the most wonderful bark supply <laughs> that you can imagine. And it was right by the road, so you could just go in there and get wheelbarrows of it. Anyway, our daughter and son-in-law, because um, they live near us, were able to come and help us do that. They'd done a lot of stack rock at their home in a town not too far away. And then a lot of the flowers and things we put in the grow box, uh, we grew. And the ferns you see there, it's really neat. You can go around in the woods, dig up the ferns, and replant them where you want them <coughs> for landscaping. And so there's a lot of fun you can have landscaping and doesn't have to cost anything. And the little uh, screen door you see there, that'll be f that's an important feature. That is the entrance to our root cellar, and we'll talk about that later. But it's very important to have that just behind the stack rock kind of in the middle there. And all the ivy is also grown in our greenhouses and so on. If you have to go to a nursery and buy all that stuff, it costs you a fortune again. So you need to have a way to do that on your own. This is going up to the front door. The stone walkway there is also free stone that you can pick up. Some of the round rocks are from our own place. Wherever we do a road, dig a ditch, dig in our garden even, we get boulders, unfortunately, and we save all the good ones that are colorful and nice and we use them for building. But I don't want you to think uh, Montana is green and gorgeous all the time. So this is the same spot last winter, okay? <laughs> but it's still Shangri-La to us. It's still <laughs> Shangri-La. Like it. Yeah, we, fun. we, we like love the, the wintertime. 
Chloe is a full-size Malamute. She weighs about 70 pounds. Even if she stood up, I don't think she'd see over the banks. Uh, and we shoveled that by hand to get up to the front door. But inside, it looks like that. That's in the summer, of course. But um, we tried to build a home that had an open plan, and I'll talk a little more about it and all our utilities and so on, but the fireplace isn't just there for pretty. It absorbs the heat and all of that. But we wanted a place when you look out, you see God's natural world. And that's so important if you can do that. It rests the soul. You can look down and see the gardens down below so we can see if a bear is trying to get in and the little fountain and so on. This is another shot. You, I like this because you can't hardly tell where the house ends and the woods begins. And you don't look out on a whole bunch of buildings. Uh, just look off into the natural world. I want to talk just a minute here. That's, by the way, that's our daughter, Rochelle, and her husband, Ted, is facing away. And just see the top of our little new grandson. Wonderful guy. Uh, <clears throat> this is on the Sabbath afternoon. And... If you had an open home like this with a high ceiling built normally, you'd have cold floor and the upstairs would be 20 degrees hotter and it would be very uncomfortable. And this is true of many people's homes who move the country and try to have just wood heat. But underneath Rochelle, there is a furnace room. It's not large. And that's where the wood heater is. So that floor is actually a concrete floor and you need to learn how to build concrete ceilings that's very important and that floor heats up because it's at the top of our furnace room and so you have a warm floor it'll be 80 or 90 degrees you kneel down your knees are warm and the temperature between this floor and the second floor up above is virtually the same uh, it's very important how you design our home the fireplace is not your normal fireplace we couldn't have built it that way we had a friend <coughs> come in the valley some years ago another Adventist and he was building his own home, but he didn't really want to do all of it, and he wanted a big fireplace, so he got a bid. for It was about the same size fireplace. Now, this was like 15, 20 years ago. The bid for the fireplace was $30,000 then. It's probably 40 or 50 just for the fireplace. That's over half of what we paid for the whole house. Uh, we couldn't do that. This fireplace probably cost uh, around $1,500 something like that, just for the concrete. It's all reinforced concrete with three flues built in. Um, I'll show you the three different flues in a minute. And then Linda did all the stonework. Well, and to the rocks here, you also, you go out along the side of the road and pick your rock. And it doesn't cost you anything, just a lot of <laughs> muscle. But she became a very good mason. She also laid all the rock that you'll see on the walkways. <coughs> With Rochelle's help, our daughter was about 14 or 15 when we built this home, and she became a good mason and is now doing the rock work in their home. We were terrible masons. Don't think, oh, those guys, they know. I'd... No, you sh I should really should have thrown a picture in here of some of our first <laughs> work. It was awful. coming out everywhere. It was really bad. This so, one works yeah. well, but it weighs 40,000 pounds, and that absorbs the heat and then little by little lets the heat out so it keeps a very constant temperature in the house it's much like a big cave like Carlsbad Cavern. it's the same temperature year round right well this house is very much the same way it also air conditions it in the summer now you'd have to have even more down here in Texas I think but if you have enough stonework and mason work in your home it evens the temperature out it works really well somebody had a question 
I can sketch it. And uh, they tell us we're not supposed to take questions right now because they can't hear on, but we'll have a whole time for questions later too, but a short one is fine. Um, yeah, it goes clear up through the scene. Another important thing with a fireplace, it must all be internal to the house. I remember one of the old timers, I told him I was building a fireplace, this was 30 some years ago. He said, don't do it. And I said, why not? He said, because I did that in my cabin and I heated the whole north end of the valley and the place was still cold, which is true. All your mason work needs to be internal to the house and insulated off, so it works well. Okay, here I am. It's Sabbath, uh, probably the same thing <coughs> we were just looking at, maybe. I don't know, but anyway, we're doing potluck, getting ready for potluck. We always, after church, have a group potluck. A wood cook stove has lots of great features, in my opinion. I like it. Uh, we'll talk more about that later but it's got an oven that can warm up multiple casseroles and uh, heat things on the top, of course. And we also have a microwave so that we can just pop something in there if it needs a little bit more warm up. And the microwave runs on our own hydroelectric power. I'll tell you about that in a minute. And the top there, it's smooth. You know, the latest stoves have these smooth tops, you know, and you don't just have an electric burner and all that. Well. We were ahead of that a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. But the old cook stoves don't have that. This, is, this one was made about three years ago. They're, they're, they're made to look old, but they're modern, they're airtight, and they'll last 100 years. It's incredible what you can do. And Linda will talk a lot about it a little later. There's bread that was baked in the oven and raspberries that we picked ready to put in the freezer downstairs. And you can see got a Bosch and refrigerator, freezer, and so. And all those things run on our own power. And yeah. it's not a very big power plant. I'll show you that later. Oh, these are from our um, orchard greenhouse. They're apricots that are ready to freeze or can. You can see over on the counter across the way is, are some peaches that have been canned. And wood cook stoves are very handy when you're going to do industrial quality canning because there's a lot of space on them. And what happens is that huge mass that it's up against absorbs the heat from that stove so even in the summer it doesn't overheat the house, which isn't the way, remember all the old summer kitchens they had because everybody was burning up? Well, it doesn't have to be that way. It gets a little warmer in the kitchen. Uh, we're fortunate that our nights are in the 40s all summer long. It's good sleeping, and it helps in a place like that. There's advantages to living in the mountains <laughs> and in cold country. There's disadvantages, too. Now, here's Misty demonstrating thermal mass heating because our, <clears throat> our wood stove is down those steps to the left. It's kind of under that pillow that's sitting on the couch. And by the way, Linda made the couch, too. Uh, so it's downstairs, but you don't see a smoke flue. And that's because where Misty is laying is the smoke flue. The smoke comes up and goes horizontally. It comes into this whole stone walkway here. It goes, flows through there relatively slowly. They told me that wouldn't work. And it works fine as long as at the end of it, you have about a 25-foot straight-up flue that's also concrete. So there's a draft. It'll pull it through there. But on the way of those 50 feet, it liberates nearly all the heat and the smoke to your home instead of going up the chimney. And we'll talk about this 
a lot more well, in. Too, just to get the perspective, you can see the corner of the fireplace there. Um, so you remember the fireplace when we were <coughs> looking at it, that is standing right here. And that's where the flu, of course, it, it comes into the fireplace and up the flues that he was speaking of. So the whole <laughs> secret to good wood heating is not to get a stove that you can choke down and get it to burn for 10 or 12 hours. So it, Otherwise, usually, if you just let a stove burn, it gets real hot and goes out, and by morning it's cold. And you have cold corners and all the rest of it. The way to do it instead is to build thermal mass heating where the smoke goes through a lot of concretes down in a concrete room. We can run that heater for hours and it only changes the temperature in the house a few degrees. But you can let it go out and the next morning it's only dropped a few degrees. It's virtually uniform because there's so much mass in there. And you always burn a hot fire. We leave the door even open a little so it gets full combustion so you get a a clean burn, virtually no creosote, uh, and fires out in maybe a few hours. You can do that if you have a way to absorb that heat out of the smoke. And that way you get the most efficient burn possible. And dogs aren't stupid. She knows where the right spot is. If, if it's a little colder, you'll see her farther back because that's where it's warmer. If it's a little warmer, she's farting this way. And you can, al she's almost like a, the thermostat that we don't have because you don't need a thermostat. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.